And I think that's a really profound point for this present moment to try and understand why people might see the world differently. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today we have guest host and History Through Fiction author Alina Adams talking with L. Bordetsky-Williams, author of the novel Forget Russia. That was a really awakening for me when I got to the Soviet Union that Jews were not considered Russians, they were not considered Soviets, they were only considered Jews. Bordetsky Williams is the author of Forget Russia, published by Tailwinds Press in December 2020. This novel was chosen as an editor's choice book by the Historical Novel Society. Bordetsky Williams is also the author of Letters to Virginia Woolf, published by Hamilton Books in 2005, The Artist as Outsider in the Novels of Toni Morrison and Virginia Woolf, published by Greenwood Press in 2000, and three poetry chapbooks, The Eighth Phrase, Sky Studies, and In the Early Morning Calling. She was a student in Moscow at the Pushkin Institute in 1980. Presently, she is a professor of literature at Ramapo College of New Jersey and lives in New York City. Today, Alina Adams will be talking to her about her book, Forget Russia. Hello, Lisa, and thank you so much for joining us here on the History Through Fiction podcast. Thank you. So here's the thing. I had a lot of thoughts while reading your book, Forget Russia, and I'm going to jump in, if you don't mind, with the one that I actually think is the most complex. So here's the situation. I was born in the former Soviet Union, and then I immigrated to the United States. And my last two books, um, The Nesting Dolls, which came out in July of 2020 from HarperCollins, and My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region, which is coming out this November, both takes place place in present day America with relatively recent immigrants, but they also, in fact, the bulk of them is the historical section, which at one point takes place in the 30s in the Soviet Union, at one point in the 1970s. And so here's my question for you, because I've been wrestling with this for quite a while. You know, there's all this talk right now in publishing about authenticity and people writing from their own experiences, whether it's their own ethnic group or religious group or sexual orientation or anything else. So I've been struggling with this, and I want to hear from you since your book, Forget Russia, also has a section that takes place in um, America at the turn of the century and in the Soviet Union in the right after the revolution. So is it cultural appropriation to write about a time period that you didn't live through? Okay, great question, Elena. Thank you so much. I mean, actually, my novel, Forget Russia, is based on family history. 
it is fiction, but a lot of it is very autobiographical. So it's based on the story of my own family and their journeys um, back and forth from Russia to America, America back to the Soviet Union. And in a sense, it's an elegy to my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And uh, I did so much research into um, this Russia becoming the Soviet Union, the Ukraine, which now is more relevant than ever. Um, my great-grandmother and my grandmother lived in the Ukraine um, and lived through amazing historical events, the revolution of 1917. And I did so much research and because I was told that my great grandmother was murdered in a pogrom and I didn't understand until I did so much research that during, um, right after the revolution, of course, is a civil war um, and the white armies tried to take, take control of the Ukraine, the anti-Bolshevik armies, and the Ukraine was a very unstable place to be. Um, and it was um, extremely dangerous, particularly if you were Jewish. The anti-Bolshevik forces blamed the Jews. And 1919 was a horrible year um, for Jews living in the Ukraine. And of course, once the Bolsheviks were able to take control back in the Ukraine, uh, many of the white and um, anti-Bolshevik forces went into the went into these small Jewish shtetls and just massacred and murdered Jews, um, blaming them for their defeat. And somehow, my gr great grandmother was caught up in all this. And I really wanted to understand, so I don't believe it's cultural appropriation. I actually feel like it's a story of the ancestor. I wanted to understand what that act of violence, my great grandmother was raped and murdered and my grandmother then came here. Her father had already deserted her um, and had come to the United States. He had married somebody else. He had a child and my grandmother stayed with an uncle outside of Kiev. He located the father and she comes all the way to America really alone. And of course she finds the father sends for her and she's just not wanted there. She's got a stepmother. And I really wanted to understand, you know, what that act of violence, what an act of hate, hate crime does to the subsequent generations. And I think that's a really relevant question Unfortunately, in this present day, we've got a lot of hate crimes. And, um, you know, I'm, I was just thinking also about your own work, Elena, because you also deal with that kind of sense of the immigrant mm -hmm. and, you know, your first generation. Um, you know, it was my mother whose parents were immigrants. So I've, you know, been much more assimilated and, you know, what that what we owe that ancestor. I mean, so in a sense, I feel like, you know, I've done a lot of work as a, as a scholar on Toni Morrison and Virginia Woolf. And to I was very moved by Toni Morrison's idea that one must understand the ancestor, that mm -hmm. somehow one's identity is all tied up with the ancestor. And that when one loses track of the ancestor, um, 
one loses track of their own identity and sense of purpose in life. And I, I was very moved by her essay on the ancestor and her ideas about the ancestor. And so I feel like in a sense, my book is, is, is a tribute to the ancestor. So if your book is heavily autobiographical or, as you said, a tribute to the ancestors, why did you choose to do it as fiction rather than as nonfiction? Great, great question. Actually, when I first started writing it, I, I was a student in the Soviet Union in 1980. So um, the book takes place in three time periods, the Ukraine before and after the revolution, the Soviet Union in early 1931, just as my grandparents actually, you know, went back to the Soviet Union. Right. And that really was amazing. actually something fascinating. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to interject is, you know, my, uh, my family immigrated in the late 1970s, which was sort of a crest of Soviet Jewish immigration right up until the Soviet Union collapsed. And the idea that there had been not only Americans who went to the Soviet Union after the revolution, you know, those that had been raised in the socialist and the Bundist tradition, right. that they went to the Soviet Union, but that there were people who left Russia and then returned to the Soviet Union would blows their minds, I assure you, to this day. So that's, I found a very interesting um, aspect of it because in the community where I was raised and the people that I know, the idea that you would leave America to go to the USSR is is basically a sign of mental illness. So I totally understand that. So I found that fascinating that you chose to address that period. And since it is autobiographical, what did you hear from your family? What was their reasoning for doing something that to those who had left would be insane? Right. And of course, this goes back to the question of why fiction? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I really had to do a lot of research. I knew my, my, um, my grandparents had returned and my, my mother was five Mm -hmm. and my aunt was three. And when I personally went back, when I didn't go back when I, when I went to the Soviet Union as a student in 1980, I mean, my mother thought I was out of my mind. <laughs> right. Uh, just like, what are you doing? Um, and I, my grandmother was somebody who didn't speak much, but everything she said was, you know, really very um, important. And she didn't say a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I, and part of the reason why I did it as fiction is I had to do, I had to really reconstruct. I did so much research into um, this, all these different time periods. Again, 1980, I, I lived through it. So the people I met are, you know, in the 1980s, Moscow is what I witnessed. Um, and also to join the different time periods, to join them up, I needed a fictional, in a sense, fiction gave me the opportunity just the structure of it, of how to get all the different people to come together in the time periods. Um, and there's a love story. And I know you have a great, you know, you, your novel is a great love story. Um, all those kinds of things required actually just a structure where all these different time periods kind of meet each other and come together. But yes, I did so much research into um a lot of Americans went back in, in 1930, 1931, first the United States suffering from a terrible depression. And many Americans, something like, you know, 
thousands of Americans, not just Jews, went to the Soviet Union to escape the economic hardship here. And the, you know, the Communist Party daily was saying there's jobs for everyone. It's really fantastic. The Jewish um, left-wing dailies were talking about Right. And you have celebrities like Paul Robeson talking about what a wonderful and free place it is. So, yes, absolutely. I, I know I know the time period you're talking. About. And that kind of longing, I think I was really trying. And I think it's different with the time your your family coming in the 1970s. Like the sense of my grandfather came before the revolution and there was always just a strong longing for the country. And he died when I was very young. So this is stories he actually got hit by a car. He'd never been sick a day in his life. And he was like really strong. And a kind of sense of longing for the country. And he radicalized here. Um, he was a carpenter with the trade unions. And you know, his feeling of, wow, you know, after the revolution, there's no more anti-Semitism. In the 1920s, from my research, things were a lot better for Jews there. Jews could come into the city. They could leave the pale. Well, right. Well, you had the um, the NEP, you had Lenin's, um, you know, the national, what is it, economic uh, program. So, yes, you have you have a lot of that, which on paper definitely would seem very appealing. And but when they got there, the economic the difficulty of it was overwhelming. And I did want to say that, you know, they left before the purges and your novel is taking place Mm -hmm. kind of the height of the purges. I thought that was really very fascinating. But it was so hard. You know, they, they, I described the communal apartments of, you know, 20 people and one bathroom and the bed bugs and, you know, all this and the, the difficulty getting food. But I do want to say from my research that, you know, the Americans in the beginning were really welcomed. They had a baseball team. You know, they were many people who came in the Midwest. There were people who were working in Ford plants and, you know, you will also mention in your book Ford having a plant mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union, and they could get paid better. There were um, African American families leaving America to escape racism, um, and initially, these families were very welcomed in the Soviet Union. Right. Well, it was part. Really it was changed. part of the propaganda. It was part of the propaganda efforts to show how much better things were in the Soviet right. Union than they were in America. Especially, they, as you mentioned, the African American yeah. families. As I mentioned, Paul Robeson. I mean, you have Paul yeah. Robeson, you know, hanging out with Stalin and saying, "I see no anti-Semitism in the USSR." None. None of it was accidental. It was completely a deliberate propaganda effort. Right. Absolutely. If these people got out, um, you know, before the, the height of the purges, that was a good thing. Yes, that, that, that was, there's really no <laughs> other way to end that sentence. Right that was a good thing. Yeah, all these things were happening. People's passports were being confiscated. Right. And the thing was, you know, my grandparents stayed nine months. Mm-hmm. And if they had stayed any longer, they would have lost their American citizenship. And right. You mentioned you have a character who the daughter signs a piece of paper saying that um, she renounces her American citizenship. And so while the parents can go back, the daughter can't. I actually found that very interesting. I didn't realize that most of the people that I knew just had their passports taken away as soon as they arrived. So it was. I had no idea that there was a year um, issue because everyone I knew said, oh, they took our passports as soon as we came in. And it, it was really, yes. And I'm, you know, and I, I was really interested in this idea of the, of the, I think every family has 
a hero or a heroine who maybe no one even realizes they saved the family. And Mm -hmm. I realized my grandmother in her very quiet way did save the family. And what was interesting in terms of the character, and again, that's all based on research. You know, she was an American and she got a job in a factory in Leningrad. And in the beginning, it was very fun for her. There was, it was very social and there were clubs Mm -hmm. and she's going here and she's going there and she felt very welcomed. And so she was, she was told become a Soviet citizen. You need that in order to continue working in the factory. So she didn't think anything of it and she did. And then she couldn't leave. It took her 40 Mm -hmm. years to come out, get out. And that's um, Mary Leader and her book, My Life in Stalinist Mm -hmm. Russia. Mm -hmm. And her parents left thinking she'd be coming back soon. They waited 40 years to see her. which is Right. There was a story, I don't remember their names, but there was a story of a pair of American communists who went to the Soviet Union and uh, they left their son in the Soviet Union and returned to America for what they thought would just be a, a fundraising and, um, you know, an, a recruitment trip. But then the American government took their passport so they couldn't leave and the Soviet Union wouldn't let their son out. So their son ended up um, living in an orphanage in the Soviet Union. And it was actually, um, they advised Paul Robeson. I keep coming back to him because I did a lot of research on him. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was to me sort of was the emblem of people who bought what the Soviet Union was selling. But he at one point was considering leaving his son, Paul Robeson Jr., while he traveled back to the U.S. And he was advised, no, because if you get stuck in the U.S., the Soviets will not let your child back out. Right. right. So I actually have another question for you which you were talking about Russia and Ukraine and how relevant that is today. So um, I've spent basically the last 40 years of my life, but certainly the last few months, because people say to me, oh, you're Ukrainian. In, in fact, um, the actress um, Mila Kunis, um, she, she had a headline, which was, I'm telling my children they're half Ukrainian. And my mm-hmm. older son said, that must be such a surprise to her parents. And the reason that I'm saying this is because when Mila, who, who emigrated in the late 70s, the same time as I did, lived in the Soviet Union in the Ukraine, no one, no Jew would have considered themselves Ukrainian. In fact, their internal passport under nationality would have said Jewish. So I've spent the last few months, people are saying to me, you're Ukrainian. And I say, no, I'm not. I was born in Ukraine. My parents are born in Ukraine. Their parents are born in Ukraine, but they never would have been considered Ukrainian. And they say, oh, right, you speak Russian. So you're Russian. And I said, no, even though we were Russian speaking Jews, because we're from Odessa and Odessa is heavily crucified, um, we would never have considered ourselves Russian. And certainly Russians would have never considered us Russian. And certainly Ukrainians would have never considered us Ukrainian. Mm. So the reason I bring that up is in your opening, you have um, the mother say to your character, you have a Russian soul, which is a very interesting thing to me because Soviet Jews would not have considered themselves Russian. Soviet Jews would not have considered themselves Ukrainian. And later you do have another character say a Jew can never be Russian. So I'm curious why you chose to focus on that when it's very different from the experience of most people who were Jews in the Soviet Union. That's a really fabulous question. And of course, that was a really awakening for me when I got to the Soviet Union that Jews were not considered Russians. They were not considered Soviets. They were only considered Jews and I was just shocked because people would ask me, are you American? Are you Jewish? And I'd be like, I'm an American Jew. <laughs> um, so I, uh, you know, I'd never really seen anti-Semitism 
like I had seen anti-Semitism when I came there in 1980. And I described Rosh Hashanah. There was only one working synagogue in 1980. And I did have the opportunity to meet more religious Jews. Many Jews were not religious, but I did have an unusual opportunity to meet them. And they were very oppressed. And I saw anti-Semitism that I'd never seen before. It's very interesting, this idea of the Russian soul is kind of different and maybe an Americanized version. Um, but that's, so I'm very, very fascinated by this because my own mother was always telling me I have a Russian soul. And it's a little bit of like this sense of, um, you know, being very intense and wanting to know what you'd live for and what you'd die for and loving Dostoevsky, which I loved when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, of course, every, you know, I continue to love Dostoevsky. Um, but it, it had to do with a sense of Russian intensity. But it's true that it's completely, in a sense, separate from this idea of a Jew would never be considered a Russian or a mm -hmm. Ukrainian. And I totally was a um got that when um i went to the soviet union it was shocking to me and i have a scene in my book where one of the characters is going to stay on um as a governess and my mm -hmm. protagonist anna goes with her to get her visa extended and the guy the russian the soviet bureaucrat bureaucrat says, oh, you know, you're from New York. There are more Jews and Americans in that place. And it was just shocking. And that actually did happen to me. And I was just shocked. Um, so, you know, I definitely um, that, that was just so, so surprising. I think this idea of the Russian soul, um, like I think of my Russian teacher telling us before we left, oh, you know, when, in Russia, people um, you know, they're going to ask you what you live for and what you die for and all these questions. And, um, you know, even, um, my protagonist, Anna, is based on my own conversations with the incredible Soviet Jews that I met. I just love them so much and they changed my whole life, but they also had an idea of America as being very shallow. You know, do you, do Americans talk about anything other than business? do uh, Americans, you know, have a soul. And so I think it's more dealing with that kind of issue of the, the Russian soul being a kind of, maybe it's part of the imaginary <laughs> that Americans have about Russia. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. That's, that's why I was, I, I, I was very curious because it almost seemed to be a, a dichotomy to me. Right. Some, something else that, that ties into what you were talking about is at one point you have your character of Anna say to one of the Soviet characters, well, the views that you're espousing, you'd be considered conservative <laughs> in the United States. And it's very interesting because I remember when we first arrived in America, American Jews were very much in line with, as I said, the socialists, the Bundes, the liberal tradition, and they mm -hmm. believe that's what Jews are. And then suddenly you got this influx of Soviet Jews who had been so traumatized and so horrified by what socialism really was rather than what it theoretically was, is that they became 
in America, much less conservative, which to this day, you think they've had almost 50 years to get used to it. But American Jews are still stunned to find out that Soviet Jews and their children espoused views that, as your character said, would be considered conservative. So how did you um, decide to work that dichotomy into Forget Russia? Okay, I think that's a really great question. And I also feel like for my character and for me as a young person, I was very young when I was there, it was really important for me to try and understand how one's experience, which what, what the Soviet Jews had gone through was so overwhelming as I learned more and more of their lives. Everyone I met, they were completely terrorized by Stalin, their, their ancestors, their parents, their grandparents, um, World War too. It was just that it was really important for me to understand when people have different experiences, they were very, very different experiences than I had growing up as a fairly assimilated Jew in the United States, you're going to perceive the world differently. And I feel like it's very important in this time of polarization that I felt like we loved each other. We didn't see, we saw the world differently based on our experiences, but that didn't mean we didn't really care about each other. That didn't mean that we couldn't be super close friends. That didn't mean that we had to say, we see the world differently. I can't, I can't associate with you. And I think that's a really profound point for this present moment to try and understand why people might see the world differently and to try and unite on our common humanity and our common wish for peace and freedom. Hey, historical fiction lovers, this is Colin Mustfold, and today I want to tell you about our virtual panel series called What's New in Historical Fiction. If you enjoy hearing from authors on the podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the virtual panel series. Hosted on Crowdcast, What's New in Historical Fiction features historical novelists with new and upcoming titles. As a moderator, I get to ask authors about their books, the inspiration for their work, and about their writing process. Those that attend live can also ask questions of the panelists, while also learning about the newest historical fiction titles. All of the events are recorded and available to watch on replay. To watch previous panels and to register for upcoming panels, just go to crowdcast.io slash history through fiction. That's crowdcast.io slash history through fiction. I hope you'll check it out. Now back to the rest of the interview. And now this question is sort of more for my own curiosity, not that the other ones weren't, but those are more global and this is more specific. So the book that I have coming out in November of 2022, which is called My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region, takes place in Barabajan, which most people are shocked to find out was the first independent Jewish state of the 20th century, it predates Israel by about 20 years. It was established on the border of uh, China and Russia. 
and Stalin gave the Jews the state. And remember when we talked about Americans leaving the um, America to come to the Soviet Union, many of them came to Barabajan. And you do touch upon Barabajan in Forget Russian that you have the elderly couple who first went to Barabajan, then found life there too hard and moved to Leningrad. So I had actually done a lot of research about it because I had heard about it faintly when I lived in the Soviet Union. My mother said the only thing she'd ever heard about it is when she was uh, in her in her teens. So this would have been in the 60s. She had a friend who wrote to um, a central office in Barabajan asking if they had any books teaching Hebrew and received the responses, no, we no longer publish this bo those books because there's not enough interest. So I knew that it existed. Um, but I needed to do a lot of research for my mother's secret. I'm curious how you stumbled upon it and whether you heard about it when you were there in the 80s and why you chose to include even that little throwaway with the character's background in Forget Russia. Okay, great, great question. I didn't hear anything about it in the 1980s at all. Um, I began to do research into families that return American Jewish families, immigrant families who had left Russia who returned. And I was trying to find as much as I could about that because I do feel like, um, you know, there's a lot that's been written about turn of the century, Eastern European Jewish immigrants coming to this country, but I really didn't find too much about those Jews who actually went back. And as you were saying in your family, that would be considered mental illness. <laughs> um, so I was able to actually um, find Lieberkatz was actually very well-known um, Yiddish scholar. His father was um, a writer. He um, was also a journalist. He brought the family to uh, this, the Soviet unions in, in the 20s. He had come to the United States. So I, I was able to actually meet Mr. Lieberkatz and interview him and it was fascinating. And they did get out before the purges. Mm -hmm. And he explained a lot of things to me and he recommended a book, My Life in Stalinist Russia um, by uh, Mary Leader. And I really just read the account and I fiction, I was very influenced by that. And that's why I have a character who's very similar. It's just these Russian immigrants who are living in Santa Monica, such a beautiful place. <laughs> it was just like, and they're reading the um, Jewish dailies, you know, talking about this unbelievable Jewish homeland. Um, and they also are coming from that Bundist um, left-wing background. And they pull their daughter out of high school and they set sail all the way to Barabajan. And they're just shocked by the difficulty. There's no running water. The whole place is mud. It's April. It's just a disaster. And their daughter's like, stays a little bit. And she's like, I'm, I'm not staying here. This is like, I'm taking off to, to Leningrad. Which and as I actually learned in my research was illegal. So oh, if she, wow. yes, you couldn't leave. People would sneak off in the middle of the night and they right. would have to that get is, a piece yes, somewhere else. Interesting. 
because it was illegal to leave Birabajan. That was one of the things that I learned. Um, I read a wonderful book by Masha Gessen called Where the Jews Aren't, where they really went into great detail. So I actually found that interesting as well, that it's very likely that that character had to probably sneak out. And, you know, they had to pay that in order to move to Birabajan, they if you were a foreigner, if you were from the Soviet Union, you didn't have to. And there were people coming from Argentina and America and Western Europe, and they had to pay for the privilege of being allowed to settle in Birabajan, and then they weren't allowed to leave. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, the parents also eventually followed their mm -hmm. daughter to Leningrad, and then she... They, they realized, they always said, I love the Soviet Union. I love this place. You know, I don't have the energy. I'm too old to deal with all this. Um, Seems a wee bit disingenuous, living. doesn't it? I love it here for other people. <laughs> and they leave, but their daughter can't get out. And that yeah. was just the tragedy. And she's stuck there for 40 years. She writes mm -hmm. about her experiences. And even um, Mr. Lieberkatz told me that it was a similar kind of situation that they all got out except his sister stayed, she married, she fell in love. She was older than him and she fell mm -hmm. in love with a Soviet man and, and probably Soviet Jewish man and um, stayed, she couldn't get out. Well, she stayed and then the marriage fell apart. But at that point <laughs> she couldn't get out. And they, they waited 40 years to see her too. Mm -hmm. It was really horrifying. And so it wasn't that unusual. Um, I was fascinated by that, that it, that idea of leaving America to go back and this sense of longing for the Soviet Union and or Russia and the wish to return to one's home, which I think is just really fascinating because it's true. Your, your characters and your experience coming later, it's like, forget it. And you know, mm -hmm. in your yes. own book, when your character wants to return, uh, I think everyone's like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Um, yes, like it, it was very different. My uh, my mother and I went back in 89, um, right, you know, the beginning of Perestroika, where the window briefly opened, where you felt that you could go back and not be trapped there. Um, right. So my mother and I went, my grandparents were practically hysterical. My father refused to go. He said he had no interest in it. Um, so it was a very, very different mindset. That's why I was fascinated by that whole Russian soul idea, because by the time we get to the immigrants of the 70s, they've been told so many times that they're not Russian and they're not yeah. Ukrainian, that the idea of longing, it's basically the equivalent of longing for prison or right. longing for a, place, for a place that never wanted you. Right. And I think that's really interesting and uh, highlights the kind of, you know, the different generations and those Jews who came earlier. And even my grandmother who the whole place was just one big tragedy for her mm -hmm. and yet when she was old she just sang russian love songs to herself <laughs> that she had learned from her girlhood and she taught them to me and that just seems so in in some ways again incongruous that a place that had been just miserable to her taking her mother raping and murdering her um, would, and then, you know, I can't even imagine my grandmother did not want to go, um, when they returned in 1931, I can't imagine how hard it must've been for her to come back. Mm -hmm. And, but it really was amazing to me that even her, there was something 
kind of magical. And the fact that she would, those songs were really beautiful. And they were all songs about unrequited love, which. <laughs> oh, well, my, my father is currently remembering all the Ukrainian poetry that he had to memorize when he was in school in Odessa, wow. but that doesn't mean he has any interest in going back. So it's, it's right. a very different thing. And I mean, and he watches the news in Russian simply because the language is easier for him to understand. But there's a big difference between maybe longing for your youth which is very different than longing from where. Um, so I think I think that is the difference that you, it, it sort of, it gets mixed up in it. It's like longing to be 20 again, gets mixed up with where you were when you were 20, but I don't think they're the same thing. I think that's, that's really true. And, you know, in my own experience coming from a more kind of left wing, I was just like, oh, I've been fed this anti-Soviet propaganda since I was five years old, you know, since one of the first books we read was Animal Farm and, <laughs> you know, it's so much propaganda. And then, you know, as I was there, my eyes kind of really opened like, whoa, this place is really, really oppressive. <laughs> like, it's overwhelmingly oppressive and everybody has been so scared. They're so afraid and you can't, you know, I, and I think part of my novel is this kind of awakening of, wow, like it just, even the closest people she meets, they're like, I can't, I can't discuss this with you. It's mm -hmm. a secret. There's so many secrets. It's a secret. It's a secret. Where did I get all the Tolstoy books? It's a secret. <laughs> I can't tell you. How come I have new Newsweek? I can't tell you it's a secret and just it was very hard for her to kind of get get that mm -hmm. um you know and just just lastly um at the end of the book she does meet these kgb agents she doesn't realize they're kgb agents mm -hmm. and i'm sure they were in retrospect mm -hmm. and you know they they are just very friendly and they invite her over she meets them at an art gallery they're so friendly and then they she starts they start questioning her about her friends and about the Jews and about, and she's, you know, and, you know, and then I realized, no wonder that, you know, I didn't, she doesn't give any names or anything, but they were definitely KGB agents. Mm -hmm. And they weren't KGB yeah. agents. They were at best people who fed information to the KGB and that's how they were able to have that lovely apartment that wasn't right. 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 Good. <laughs> You're right. It was just very, just very horrible to kind of see all that in action. So from communism to capitalism, where can people get your book? Forget Russia. I, Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, um, really just, you know, um, really any, anywhere. Um, and uh, um, do you have a website? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's www.forgetrussia.com. Uh, people can also uh, email me, uh, forgetrussia at gmail.com. So, um, it's, and I, your book is fascinating. I felt like there were so many, so many places that we intersect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's a great dialogue to think about these, in, you know, incredible experiences of America and Russia and the Soviet Union. Especially these days when people ask questions that the first book talk that I did after the Ukrainian 
invasion. I was just, I, I didn't even have the words because it was so complicated. And as I mentioned, my parents grew up in Odessa and that's where I was born. And my mother, a few days ago, she said to me, they're mining the beaches. Can you believe that they're mining the beaches? Oh. So it's, it's, it's very overwhelming and I don't even have the words. So thank you for sharing your words. And thank you so much for stopping by and talking about Forget Russia. And uh, my book, upcoming one, is My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region, which will be out November of 2022 from History Through fiction which was very kind and allowed us to sort of hijack this podcast from them so thank you so much lisa it was wonderful having you on thank you it was really wonderful being here